one. Pretend like we're not dealing with chronic illness. Pretending that we're not uh, battling a a debilitating depression or an overwhelming weight of anxiety. Pretend, are we supposed to pretend that we never suffered abuse? That we're not broken people in a broken world filled with anger and outrage and injustice? How are we supposed to rejoice always? Are we supposed to just fake it until we make it? And why in the world would God command us to rejoice always when we live in a world like we live in? when we live in the skin that we live in, when we have the personality that we have. I mean, Eeyore is a character in Winnie the Pooh, but he's also a person in real life. You know what I'm saying? Have you met Eeyore personalities? You might be one, you might be one. An Eeyore personality is a person who wins the lottery and then says, but I'm gonna get killed on the taxes. Like my whole, my tax bracket's destroyed now. Like my whole life is gonna be ruined because of all this money that I've just suddenly caught a windfall of. So I thought maybe it'd be helpful if I shared some truth about joy. And I'm not, I'm not talking about definitional truth that you could find in Webster's. I'm talking about wisdom truth that you can find in the Bible. And the first truth about joy that I wanna share with you is this. Joy is an end time attitude. Joy is an end time attitude. I always heard and have usually taught that joy and happiness are not the same thing. How many of you, like me, grew up in a place where people said joy and happiness are not the same thing? Anybody? Yep. Okay, some of you raise your hand. Some of you are just not extroverts like the rest of us who raise our hand. All the introverts unite privately in your own rooms with the door closed and the lights off. But did you know that the Bible uses joy and happiness interchangeably? The, the Bible doesn't differentiate them. And if you think about it experientially, you would say, yeah, joy and happiness pretty much feel the same to me. And what we've heard is joy is this internalized state that we are in and happiness is based on our circumstances. I wanna make the supposition or the proposition, excuse me, to, to you that Jesus was the most happy and joyful person who ever lived. And if the Bible uses the words interchangeably, then maybe you and I need to rethink. I'm just inviting you to rethink whether or not we should also be able to use them interchangeably. And I wanna ask, was like I asked myself, was Jesus, if Jesus was the most joyful person ever, was he joyful when he was on the cross? Like, did he have joy on the cross? Could Jesus be on the cross and be rejoicing? When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's under so much anxiety and stress, knowing what's coming, that the capillaries in his forehead burst, causing him to literally sweat blood. He's under such a weight of anxiety that he's sweating drops of blood. In that moment, if we could have been there with Jesus and not been sleeping as his disciples were and see that take place and have been present enough and prescient enough to say, Jesus, are you rejoicing right now? Are you fulfilling the command to rejoice always right now? What would the answer Jesus, uh, what, what answer would Jesus have given? And I think the answer is found actually in the Bible again, in Hebrews chapter 12, if you flipped over to Hebrews chapter 12. Writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus, 
the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're going to have joy, you're going to have to have joy in the actual life that you have. If you're going to find happiness, you're going to have to find happiness in the life that you actually have. Jesus endured a bad moment, a painful moment, a distressing moment. And listen, that description is not nearly sufficient for what Jesus went through. But there has yet to be poetic language invented that could accurately describe the agony that Jesus would go through, himself being God and having God turn his back on him because of the weight of the sin of the world that was put upon Jesus. There are no descriptors available to us to accurately portray what Jesus went through in that moment. But he endured it by holding on to the joy that belonged rightfully to him, the joy that was his. Our problem in this life is that our struggles, our trials, our failures, and our suffering all feel ultimate. They all feel ultimate. It's never going to be better than this. It's never going to be even okay, much less good. But the truth for all Christians is this. For all Christians, this is the truth. Pain is only temporary. Joy is yours for eternity. It's yours forever. It belongs to you forever. It is yours. Joy is an end time attitude. Joy is the ability, the gift from God to be able to step back from the circumstance of your life and see the whole arc of eternity. Joy also is a work of the spirit of God in us. It's a work of the spirit of God in us. It's not something that we can manufacture in ourselves. And for those of you who have a friend who's hurting, discouraged, depressed, anxious, going through a painful circumstance or situation in their life, could I just suggest to you that one of the worst things that you could do to them is to say, you know, you should have joy right now. You should be happy right now. That is like the grinding of teeth, Proverbs says. It's like pouring acid or lemon juice on an open wound. It's rubbing salt into an open wound. Joy is a work of the spirit of God in us. Galatians 5 uh, verses 22 and 23 actually tells us how the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. If you flip back just a couple of books, a couple of pages in your Bible to, to Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23 say, the fruit of the spirit, and it's important to understand that that's supposed to be imagery. So as the Holy Spirit takes root in your life, takes control of your life, there's a natural outworking of that. That naturally produces something inside of you. And here's what it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. There's no law anywhere against such things. And then in Psalm 1611, I really like this little verse right here. Psalm 1611, the psalmist says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. 
What, what we long for is a button that we can push that will make us a joyful person. What we long for is a solution to our problem, is a cure for our pain, and is a reversing of our brokenness that happens instantly. And there's a day when that will happen. It's why oftentimes in the Bible, you see the word Maranatha. It's when a Bible writer was like penning out their desires, their hopes for God, their love for God, or the brokenness of the world or the injustice of the world. And then all of a sudden they burst out and they say Maranatha. And what they're saying is, Jesus, would you just come and fix this? We look and long for immediate fixes to the pain and the problems of this world. The invitation instead is to the process of sanctification, to the drawing near to God, because in his presence is joy forevermore. Joy forevermore. The pathway to joy, the pathway to personal joy is the way of abiding intimacy, abiding intimacy with the God of peace. Alec read for us John 15, that's perfect. I love, like the whole, it's like the Holy Spirit knows what's going on because he and I did not confer. I don't even think he knew the text that I was gonna be preaching. He certainly didn't know the content of what I was going to say, but Jesus himself told us, abide in me and I will abide in you. And the result will be this manifestation of fruit. We say, my life doesn't have any peace. I'm looking for the button to push. My life doesn't have any joy. I'm looking for the button to push. And Jesus says to us, particularly those of us who belong to him, be with me and I will produce that in you. Joy is cultivated and experienced by those who are at peace with God, at peace with themselves, at peace with others, and at peace with a daily experience of their own life. That's how joy is experienced, through peace. It's no coincidence that oftentimes in the Bible, we hear peace and we get joy. We hear about joy and we get peace. The angels show up and talk to the shepherds when Jesus is born and they say, good news, great joy shall be for all the people. And then they say, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Peace and joy, they're intertwined. If my life has no peace, if, I, if, my, if the state of my spirit and soul is this endless wrestling turmoil, this dissatisfaction with the skin that God put me in and the circumstances that I find myself in, then I cannot possibly expect to have any joy. But once I realize that the life that God has given me, the skin that God has put me in, the people that God has put me with, and the position that he has made available to me in Jesus the forgiveness and the grace that I've received. Once I make peace with that, I'm able then to possess joy, to put it in my hands and to experience it. Because the other thing that I wanna say about joy is this, it's experienced in real life. Joy can only be experienced in your real life. I got this quote from Dallas Willard that I'll put on the screens here for you. And uh, anything that you can read by Dallas Willard, I strongly recommend you read. Here's what Dallas Willard has to say. He says, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithful, uh, faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being, quote, right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. God has yet to bless anyone except for exactly where they are. 
This is why the gospel is good news, guys. This is why it's good news. Couldn't your life use some good news? A thrill of hope. The weary world could rejoice. The only place that God can meet you is where you actually are. The only place that God can bless you is exactly where you are. The only place that God can give you joy is exactly where you are. There is not some fix that will happen in your life that will give you joy and peace. Or the way one of my former pastors used to say it, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. That's just somebody else's brown grass. There's not something that's going to change outside of you that can produce in you joy. It's not magic. There is no button to push. Joy is found in God alone. That's where it's found. And how do we get to God, you might ask? Well, Jesus in John chapter 14 told his disciples, you're gonna have a lot of problems. I'm going away from you. But don't worry because I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And the disciples said, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. How do we get there? And Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one can get to God except by me. The pathway to the presence of God is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you and I can see our everyday lives as God's plan and purpose, when we understand that this is God's way of forming us into the image of Jesus, like conforming us into his image and drawing us into intimacy. Once we understand that, we will be able to take hold of and keep joy. If joy is missing from your life, then I would suggest to you the pathway that you need to walk is intimacy with Jesus, time with Jesus. It's not a quick fix, but it is the only fix. Change is not fast in a person. We don't change immediately. It's so, it's so disappointing, isn't it? It's so disappointing when, uh, when you're doing your best, like I'm doing my best. And then you come to a moment and you just absolutely drive your life right into the wall. You yell at your kids. You don't sacrificially love your spouse. Maybe you're even mean to them. You ignore your friends, knowing that they might even need you. You stifle the spirit, like you quench him. You're just like, I don't wanna do that thing, so I'm just not gonna do it. And then you're like, oh man, you go and you say, I'm sorry, I don't wanna be like me anymore. I don't wanna be like this anymore. Surely I'm not the only person in the room who has thought to themselves, I don't wanna be like me. I'm tired of being like me. I'm frustrated by me. I know what I'm really like. How do I get out of this skin? How do I get out of this loop, this endless, this seemingly endless loop of mistakes and sins and failures, disappointments? And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can get to God's presence. And by the way, God's presence, the Bible says, in your presence, endless joy, perfect peace. 
how, how do I get endless joy and perfect peace? I must be endlessly in the presence of God. How do I get, what do I need to do to get into God's presence? Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can get there apart from me. The change process is incredibly slow. But you have to remember, you will never experience the blessing of God. You'll never experience joy. You'll never experience victory anywhere except for exactly where you are. Exactly where you are with all the pain and all the problems and all the irritations and all of the failures, exactly where you are. In Christ, you've been made holy. This is bonus content. This isn't even in my notes, but I just feel prompted to say it. You have been made holy. And I, I know what you're thinking, because it's what I think. I don't feel very holy. Did you know in the Old Testament, pots and pans are made holy? Candles are made holy. Tables are made holy. They, they are made holy because they are set apart for God. I've never known a pot or a pan that could sin. Not ever in my whole life. Some of what I have done in them has been sinful. I'll just be honest. There have been some times when I've tried to make some stuff. I, I once made this lemon pepper chicken for Sarah. I think I put like 18 lemons in it. It was like, you remember that Sarah? This is a, is a vivid memory for both of us when we were dating. I made this lemon pepper chicken and she's like, mm, this is really good. You know, like, you're a great cook. You know, <laughs> like, it's got a little kick to it. You know what I'm saying? It's a pot, it's a pan. Holiness is not about your goodness or your badness. Holiness is about being reserved for God, set apart for God. Sanctification is the process of being conformed into his image. That takes time. He says, rejoice always. And then he says, pray constantly. <laughs> We're in the second verse. Rejoice always, That's, that feels like a problem. That feels like it's written for someone else. Pray constantly. Good, because I didn't feel bad about myself before this moment, but now I certainly do, right? And I know you're like, well, yeah, you're a pastor though, so you must pray all the time. No, false, I don't. I struggle with it. Do you ever feel condemned when you read the Bible? And isn't the Bible supposed to be a word of comfort? I mean, you like you go to the Bible, you're like, I need some help, God. I need some encouragement. God, my life's in shambles. I'm like, I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. I'm gonna go to the Bible. I'm gonna open it up. I'm gonna look for a word of blessing and comfort from God. And I just happen to scroll down and drop my finger on the page looking for God to give me that magic cure. Magic is what we want. Push the button and I am different. Not change and sanctification where we say it's a long, slow process and every choice I'm being conformed into the image of Jesus. And we drop our finger down and we come across 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, pray constantly. And I'm like, God, do you know what my life looks like and what my life has looked like? Looked like, pray constantly. Okay, first of all, God, I just wanna say, you're the one who gave me ADD. Like, I want to take it back to the garden when Eve's like, you know, the snake, which this is in subtext. This is just the right now the subtext, which you made, God. <laughs> like, it's kind of on you. Pray constantly. You know how hard it is for someone like me 
to have an extended focus time of prayer? How difficult that feels to me. Like a, like a labor for me to say, I'm going to set aside distraction and I'm gonna spend more than 30 seconds of focused attention on something. And by the way, something that I can't see, see taste, smell, touch, have any physical awareness of. You are the one who gave me ADD. Second of all, I have a wife and three teenage children. Third of all, I have a church to pastor and hundreds of friends. And fourth of all, I own the whole series of The Office on Apple TV+. And I feel like if you really wanted me to pray all the time, you would not have invented The Office. You would have never let that get into production. And, and this betrays what I think about prayer. It communicates what I really think about prayer. Maybe it's what you think about it too. I usually think about prayer as the abandoning of real life. I usually think about prayer as me stepping back into inertia, me stepping away from activity and saying, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now all I can do is pray. There's nothing left for me to do but pray. This is a real problem that we have. We believe that prayer is an abandonment of our activity. We fail to see prayer as part of the process of sanctification and transformation, the process that God uses in our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about prayer, he says, pray like this. And one of the phrases is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're probably familiar with that. If you played sports in high school, chances are good you took a knee before the game and you prayed that very thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, you should pray this. And we pray that, or maybe I should say, I pray that. And my thoughts as I pray it are, get to work, Lord, go get them. Establish your kingdom on earth the same way that it is in heaven. But in preparation for this message, God asked me an important question. He didn't audibly ask me or anything like that. Just a question popped into my mind that I believe was from the Lord. How is God's kingdom inaugurated on earth? How, did it be, how was God's kingdom inaugurated on earth? And the answer is he himself was born in a physical human body. And then he gathered up some disciples and sent out those disciples with a very simple message. It's in Matthew chapter 10, verse seven. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10 and verse seven. This is the powerful message that Jesus said, I want you to go out and say this. He gave him some instructions for the journey. Don't take money, don't take extra clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And he says in verse seven, as you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons, freely you received, freely give. What? Okay, we close our services with a benediction, which means a word of blessing. 
Imagine me closing out the service and saying, guys, this week, as you go out into the world, as you go out into your everyday life, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, and I quote, heal the sick. I don't know how to do that. Raise the dead. Cleanse those with leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Is there anything you want me to say? Yes, the kingdom of heaven is near. That's it. That's it. Announce the kingdom, manifest the kingdom. The way that the kingdom of God is manifested on earth is through actual people. That's how it happens. The way the gospel goes forward is through actual people, real living human bodies. The lives that we actually live, that's how the kingdom of God is manifested. If God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then God's people will be the one who will do it and who will teach people that it really is the pinnacle of human flourishing, the apex of humanity, the ideal for what life is supposed to be. And in fact, the only experience that actually deserves the title life. Pray constantly doesn't mean do nothing but pray. It means to see your whole life as a dialogue with God, to maintain intimacy. My daughter has a couple of pretty good friends and one of the things that they will do sometimes, some of our friends, and maybe, maybe some of your kids do the same thing, I don't know for sure, uh, is they will open up a FaceTime call with each other, but then not actually talk to each other. And the connection is just there. So if something interesting happens, they can be like, oh, I just thought of this. Oh, hey, this just happened. Hey, this question popped into my mind. Like, what do you, what do you think about this? To pray constantly doesn't mean to abandon everyday life, become a Benedictine monk and just pray. To pray constantly means that you always leave the call open, that you are looking for opportunities to bounce ideas, problems, pains, suggestions, random thoughts off of the one who loves you and the one who knows. Rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. Once again, we're left to wonder, does God understand what's happening in my life? If joy is the attitude that results from seeing everything as a gift from God, and if prayer is the work of intimacy that produces an active working peace and a wise understanding of our place in God's plan and world, then giving thanks is just a natural result of a person who's experiencing both peace and joy. I'm gonna say it again. It's not magic. And there's no button you can push to see this kind of transformation in your life. If you want to be a thankful person, then you must be a person who understands their place in God's plan, a person who's filled with joy. And then you must enter into Jesus. You must strive to know him, to love him, and to become like him. Because only in God's presence can a person be thankful for all things. 
only underneath the arc of eternity can we understand how God uses pain and loss and sickness and failure for our good. Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose has become simply a bumper sticker. And the problem for us is we prefer illumination to transformation. Illumination says, oh, look, a neat thing. Now I understand it. There's a neat idea that I have just realized. And then we move on to the next thing. Instead of taking the illumination and doing the hard work of saying, how do I integrate this into the real lived experience of my life? Hebrews 4.11 says, there remains a rest for us. There remains a rest for God's people, but we have to strive to enter that rest. Isn't that an interesting description of rest? Strive to enter the rest. To know him, to love him, to be given peace, to be given wisdom and insight into the happenings of everyday life, to be able to be thankful in all things that happen, understanding that God's plan for your sanctification is the thing that you call everyday life. That that's actually, that the, in the manifold, infinite wisdom of God, he said, I'm gonna make Raiden look like this. I'm gonna make him sound like this. I'm gonna make him good at these things, bad at these things. I'm gonna move him to these places, surround him with these people. I'm gonna give him this calling. I'm gonna put him in these jobs. I'm gonna give him these friends. I'm gonna put this amount of money in his pocket. I'm gonna put this amount of health, strength, and intelligence into his life. I'm gonna give him this particular personality. I'm gonna give him this number on the Enneagram scale. I'm gonna give him this set of letters on the Myers-Briggs personality test. And that is how I am going to conform him into the image of my son. God's plan for your sanctification is just the thing that you call everyday life. And what is God's will for you? That you would rejoice always, that you would pray constantly, cultivating a deep and abiding intimacy that produces a powerful peace and that you would be able to give thanks in everything. That's God's will for you. What we wanna do is we wanna invert the process and we wanna say, God, tell me what you want me to do and then I'll become the kind of person who does it. Right? I mean, I can't be the only one who feels like this. God, if you tell me what to do, then I'll figure out how to do it. it that's, that's just crazy, right? That's just crazy. Tell me what to do, and then I'll figure out how to do it. And God says, no, what I'm going to do instead is, I'm going to form you into the image of my son, Jesus, and almost always, you're going to have no clue what to do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, like, come on, is anybody awake with me today? You're going to have no idea what to do. The number of times in my everyday life that a situation comes up and I'm like, I have no clue what I am supposed to do. 
something as simple as a child asking me, one of my children asking me, can I go do this thing with my friends? I don't know what to do. I feel like that should, like if I get a tattoo, maybe that should be the tattoo. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Or perhaps I'm just guessing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just guessing. Like life to me feels like getting up in the middle of the night, trying to go to the bathroom. All I want to do is not step on a Lego and not smash a toe. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to bang my toe into something and I don't want to smash a Lego. And I want to remember to put the seat back down when I'm done. Okay, it's a two-part process. I don't know how guys got stuck with all, like 100% put the lid up, 100% put the lid down. I, I am responsible for two things in my home with that toilet. Both of those things fall upon me. And I used to have a problem with it until once I forgot to put the lid down and then I was the one who had the adventure of falling into what felt like an endless black hole. That's part of God's plan for my sanctification. Everyday life, just everyday life, the ordinary. God's plan to bring you into the image of Jesus. I I cannot say this enough times. I cannot emphatically communicate it well enough for you. God's plan to conform you into the image of Jesus is the thing that you experience on a daily basis. That's his plan, the skin that you're in the things that you're good at and bad at, the struggles that you face, the internal turmoil that you have, the particular personality that you possess, the orientation towards extroversion or introversion, towards preferring people or study, preferring going out and doing stuff or staying in and not. All of that combines, not as your identity, but as your pathway, all of those things that exist, they are not meant to be definitional for who you are. They're meant to be illumination for the process of transformation. Because if you are going to be transformed, the starting place of transformation is who you are, where you are. Because God has never blessed anyone apart from where they are exactly in the present moment. God's will for you, God's will for you is to fill your life with joy through intimacy to give you a deep sense of purpose and real life wisdom and to give you a heart that's filled with gratitude born out of a deep and lasting peace. Doesn't that sound good? That's what God wants for you. That's God's plan for you. You know what my plan is? God, I got an ouchie, get me out of this. God, I'm so frustrated with my inability to focus in prayer. Can you just make me a different person? God, I'm so irritated with this person, this situation in my life. And if this situation wasn't here, then I would have all those things that I'm supposed to have. I have some friends, we joke around in ministry together and and some of them I've even been on staff with and at one church that I was at this is sort of like a recurring joke it's probably a recurring joke in your life that maybe you just aren't even aware of but we had a pastor that um, from our lofty perch wasn't doing a very good job 
and he made it known that he was going to be leaving. And the joke came to the surface. What will we complain about once we don't get to complain about this? What will we be frustrated? What will be the reason that we're not intimate with God and victorious in Christian life when we don't get to use this excuse anymore? God's plan and God's purpose and God's will for your life is to fill you with joy through intimacy to give you a deep sense of purpose and real life wisdom for your life wisdom and to give you a heart that's filled with gratitude that's born out of a deep and lasting peace. That's so good. That's what God wants for you. Verses 19 through 21 say, don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what's good. Stay away from every kind of evil. That's through 22. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. It's important to remember that the Thessalonians didn't have a written New Testament. A whole chunk of the Bible that we have is Paul writing back to churches and being like, guys, stop listening to those idiots. They're not telling you the truth. They're lying to you so that they can profit off of you. And even still today, there is an entire industry of so-called preachers and pastors whose sole purpose of existence is to tell you what you hope to hear, that there is a magic thing that you can do that will make you happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. And the pathway to that is to give them money. And if you will just sow a seed of faith, you will reap an abundance of fill in the blank with whatever the thing that you deeply, desperately hope would be true will become true. Give them money and your life will no longer have pain. Give them money and you will no longer be sick. Give them money and you will be healed. Give them money, your marriage will be saved. Give them money, your children will come back and love Jesus. Give them money, you will get the promotion. Give them money and God will give you more money. Paul says, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Don't blindly accept someone opening up a Bible and saying to you, thus saith the Lord. Don't do it. Don't do it. So how do we test preaching? I just wrote out a few things. There's a lot more than this, but honestly, like I said, I could spend months on this and at some point you're gonna wanna go home. Is it consistent with the teaching of the Bible? Like, do I see this playing out in the things that Jesus specifically said and did? Did Jesus go around saying, give me money and I'll give you more money? Did Jesus go around saying, give me money and I will heal you? Did he profit off of his own ministry? Is it consistent with the Bible? Does it center on Christ and his work? It's the preaching about making much of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. Am I studying in community? I used to have a professor who said, if you come up with a new doctrine, the word for that is heretic. And I'm saying, if you study the Bible in isolation, it's very easy to get into the echo chamber of your own head and heart. Study it in community, particularly in your local church community. 
Have I prayed about it? That's another good question. Have I talked with my elders, my mentors, my parents, so on and so forth? Have I talked to the people that God has put in authority over my life? We don't like to talk about this very much because we don't want anyone to be in charge of us. We don't want anyone to be the boss of us and we don't want anyone to lead us. But in Christ, authority is a gift. It's a blessing because the authority that God gives is responsibility for others. It's taking on the weight of their life. That's what authority is supposed to be. Don't despise prophecies, test all things. And then he says, hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. In other words, don't test forever. Don't always only be evaluating. Don't always endlessly be looking at things with a critical spirit or a critical perspective. Test it. And if it's good, then use it, integrate it. If it's bad, stay away from it. Illumination is not the same thing as transformation. Hold on to what is good. If God speaks to you, take hold of it. Figure out how to integrate it into the thing that you call your life, your daily experience. Don't create some idealized version of Christianity that you will never be able to attain to. Listen, if you have little children at home, you are never going to have a prolonged quiet time. You're never going to have this prolonged glorious time of uninterrupted devotion to Jesus where you get your coffee and you get to sit there and nothing interrupts you. Your children are going to interrupt you. That can be a gift. That's just your everyday life. Maybe you have more discipline than me and you know how to lock doors better than me and you know how to just ignore them better than me. But for me, it never happened when my kids were little. I can't even imagine what it was like for my wife. Thankfully, I never had to. Just being honest, I don't know how you follow Jesus in this idealized way in our minds, in the everyday life that you have. The truth is that the idealized version of following Jesus is a myth. And what you need is to follow Jesus in the real life that you have, to learn how to be obedient to him in the real life that you have, how to maintain and cultivate intimacy with him in the real life that you have. Don't despise the prophecies, test them. Hold on to what is good in uh, James chapter one. There's this great little passage in James chapter one, verses 19 through 25. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, Understand this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth. By the way, ridding yourselves of all moral filth. This is an ongoing process. Don't get discouraged with where you are. You don't have to be discouraged with where you are, but you, ha you do have to be honest about where you are. You have to be honest about it ridding yourself of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But don't just receive it. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror for he looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. The pathway to blessing, blessing, by the way, is used interchangeably with happiness, is used interchangeably with joy. The pathway to that is persevering in obedience to God's word. Not just getting the illumination, but taking hold of it. And not taking hold of it philosophically, theoretically, but taking hold of it in the thing that we call everyday life. The work of sanctification is slow. It's moment by moment, but it only ever happens in the present. It only happens in the present. That's the only place that sanctification can happen, in the present. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The God of peace will sanctify you completely. Sanctification itself is a brutal process. It is a, sanctification is brutal. I was thinking about like, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Eustace turns into the dragon, some of you are like, spoiler alert, guys, it's been out for like 100 years, so I'm sorry, you're gonna have to get over it. But the process for Eustace when he's a dragon and is transitioning from dragon back to his human self is the process of having the scales ripped off of him. The lion, Aslan, is ripping the scales off and Eustace the dragon is experiencing tremendous pain. The process of sanctification can be really painful. It's Eustace having the scales ripped off. It's Lazarus having the tightly bound embalming grave clothes taken off of him. It's the grinding, the melting, and the scraping process that brings us into God's presence and produces peace. And it's important for you to know that the one who will sanctify you completely is not a God who hates you. It's not a God who's against you. It's not, he's not named as the God of armies as the God of victory, as the God of justice, as the God of all power, he's named as the God of peace, which means the pain in your life has a purpose. And the pathway to peace is not the absence of pain. It's not the avoidance of pain. It's not the fleeing of pain. It's understanding that the pathway to peace is through the thing that we call everyday life, which must mean it's through the pain. It's why we need each other. It's why we need an abiding in Christ. Because the pain that you experience in your life, the hurts that you experience, they are very real. They can be completely debilitating. They can be absolutely overwhelming. Sometimes the only thing that can provide even a fractional measure of comfort is a friend who will just sit with you because there's nothing that can be said and there's nothing that can be done. But the pathway to peace is the process of sanctification the one who's taking you through this life, 
the one who's conforming you into the image of Jesus, the one who's bringing you into his presence is the God of peace. The God of peace. Sanctification is the process where God uses the brokenness of everyday life to bring you back into perfect fellowship with him. You will never have another pathway than the life that you have. You will never have another human experience beyond the one that you are having now. Verse 24, maybe for you this morning is the same thing that it is for me, like the sweetest balm that a weary follower of Jesus could ever hear. The kind of medicine that we really desperately need to hear when we think the Bible's for someone else or the Bible creates these unrealistic expectations that no human being is ever going to fulfill except for Jesus. Verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. Sanctification, transformation, that's God's work in you. That's not your job. That is not work that you can do. You cannot sanctify yourself and you cannot transform yourself. Not into the image of Jesus. That is God's work. He's faithful and he will do it. So what is our work then? If that's God's work, what is our work? Our work is to receive. Our work is to trust. And I know you're thinking, and our work is to obey. No, our work is to abide. To receive, to trust, to abide. Because the abiding in Christ will produce fruit in your life. Because the Bible's not meant to be a self-help manual. The Bible is the revelation of God for us. We can't go to it looking for God to say only and always do this, not that. We should go to it saying, God, I want to be with you. I want to draw close to you. I want intimacy with you. I wanna be in your presence. I wanna know you. Because the more and more and more that you know someone, the more and more and more that you can anticipate and predict what they will want. Just in your own life, think about the person that you know most and the number of times in your life, that best friend, that spouse, that boyfriend or girlfriend, that brother or sister, that parent or grandparent, the number of times that you have said out loud or thought to yourself, they're not here, they never experienced this moment, but I know exactly what they would say. I know exactly what they would do. I know exactly what they would think. It becomes a recurring joke to us sometimes. We watch football now. My family watches football. And when we're watching football, some terrible thing will happen. Some terrible play will take place. And we'll say, well, you know what people would say? That's just poor coaching. I know what he would say. Irrelevant to what, irrespective of the details of what took place in the game. For him, it always came back to poor coaching. That's just poor coaching. I know for a fact that on a day when the weather was just right, when the company was just right, when the food had been just right, and when the moment was just right, he would sit back and he would say, well, 
What do you think the poor people are doing right now? And somebody would respond with the phrase, well, they're, and then they would describe exactly what we were doing in that moment. And then somebody else, usually my mom would say, but we're rich in everything that matters. It becomes almost like a liturgy. It becomes like this organized thing that we understand how they are going to respond and what they are going to say. And you and I go, man, it'd be great if God would just tell me what to do. And God says, why don't you get to know me? And then you'll just know what I like and what I don't like, what I expect and what I don't expect, what I want. Can we pull that Dallas Willard quote up again, Grace? I wanna leave you with this as we move into a time of response. It's up on the screen, find it in my notes. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. And I wanna invite you in this moment to receive God's kingdom into your life. It's possible that you came in this morning and you have never given your life to Jesus. You've never surrendered yourself. You've never said, I'm gonna stop trusting what I can do for God. And instead, I wanna put my faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. I want Jesus to bring me into the family, to forgive me for my sin, to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness, to make me a co-heir, like to make me a part of the family. If you've never, that's just the process of becoming a Christian. If you've never done that, I wanna invite you in this moment to do it. And those of you who would say, yeah, but I've all this sin or all these problems, or I've been in the church way too long to do it now, I would just say to you, God has never blessed anyone except for exactly where they are. And he is not at all surprised by where you are today, where you are physically, where you are emotionally, where you are mentally, where you are spiritually. He knows you. He sent his son to die on a cross because he loved you so much. And anyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And God, John 3, 17 says, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. And the world, my friend, includes you. But I also wanna say, weary friends, anxious friends, depressed friends, discouraged friends, distant friends, that God wants to meet you and bless you in the exact moment and place that you are right now. And God wants to work in the thing that you just call a Tuesday or a Monday or a Sunday afternoon and not work in a way that says, now we've flipped a switch and we'll never struggle again. But God wants to invite you to look at your life the same way that he looks at it as his plan for making you a whole person giving you the only thing that deserves the name life. And I wanna invite you to remember, to ask God, how do I take one step 
this morning in following and obeying you because I want that. You take a moment where you are, you can respond as you will, and if you would like to talk to me or Josh, we'll be available at the back to pray with you, to counsel you, to encourage you. If you want to make a decision, give your life to Jesus or talk with one of our pastors about being baptized or something along those lines, please fill out a connection card or come back and talk to us or catch us after the service. If you're like me, maybe you just need the gift of a brief moment to remember God's plan for you is this thing that you call your everyday life. That's his plan for you. And if you need help, we're here to help. If you need friends, we're here to love. And if you just need somebody to sit with you, we're here to be present. That's the commitment that we've made as a family in our church. We do it together. You take a moment, and then in just a moment, I'll pray for us, walk us through a couple of ways that we respond. God, you've given us this great gift of life. And we feel like we feel deeply in our bones that it's supposed to be something different than what we're experiencing. Would you, would you help us to see that that is our soul crying out for eternity, crying out for you, that the solution that we're longing for is not an external change, but is an intimacy with you. And the Holy Spirit, for everyone who's weary, everyone who's struggling, who's discouraged or depressed or anxious, everyone who's frustrated, with being themselves. Would you speak a word of comfort to them to remind them that this is all part of the plan and they have something that is far greater that belongs to them and that will be theirs for all time. these things and so much more. We pray in the name of Jesus. Available for you, those of you who are followers of Jesus on, in the hospitality area on the table over there is the Lord's Supper elements. You just peel the top layer off for the cracker and the second layer for the juice. 
we take the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, but I think it's important to remember a couple of things. Number one, there's a command in scripture to evaluate ourselves and to not take it in an unworthy manner. Taking it in an unworthy manner is bellying up to the table without putting your faith in Jesus. It's coming to the table with sin in your heart, sin against God or sin against others without having confessed that, sought forgiveness for that. I encourage you before you take it to do an evaluation of your own heart. And then I encourage you as you take it to remember what Jesus himself said about it, that you're gonna do this and by doing it, you're gonna proclaim his death and you'll keep doing it until he returns. And the proclamation of his death is us saying, it's the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus that made us right with God. We're dependent upon Jesus. That's what we're saying when we take it. Jesus, I'm dependent upon you. I can't do it without you. Calling out to him, so I invite you to do that. We also give, you can give during this time. There's an offering box on the table. You can give by text, you can give on our website. You can give through the church centers app. It is important that you give because there's probably no stronger idol in our world, in our culture and in our context than personal wealth and the security that we believe that it brings to us. You should give as God leads you to give and when you give, what God tells you to give, when you give that, you should be pumped up, overjoyed about your obedience. Not discouraged that you're not giving more, not prideful that you gave so much, not questioning whether or not you should have given less. Listen to the Holy Spirit, give what he tells you to give and then be excited about it because you were obedient. And you can't be obedient in anybody else's shoes except your own. And you can't be obedient any other moment except for this one. So you be obedient. And then you can celebrate your obedience. We're gonna sing together. Josh and I will be available to pray with you, to counsel you or to encourage you in the back. And then we'll close our services. We'll be sent to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, to proclaim and manifest the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that's weary and needy. So when you're ready, you take the elements. The band will come back up in just a moment and lead us in singing.